If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Impact Theory. I am here with someone who is a total legend for me. This is David Burns, MD. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I'm psyched. Dude, I, I am so excited. I encountered your um, book, Feeling Good, about um, 18 months ago and have since that point been desperate to get you on the show. I think it's one of the most profound books if somebody is struggling with anxiety, depression, any sort of mood disorder. Uh, and so when you release the new book, Feeling Great, it was a perfect opportunity to get you on. Um, I think the, the two books together are really the most, uh, certainly the most effective thing I have ever encountered. I think cognitive behavioral therapy in general is just beyond extraordinary. Um, if, if I do my job well, because I know you have the information, if I do my job well, by the end of this, um, somebody that's struggling with a mood disorder, I think will be moved forward pretty profoundly. Um, if you don't mind, let's start with the basics. What is cognitive behavioral therapy um, and why do you think that it, it works as rapidly as it does? Yeah, and then after that, we can add what's new and feeling great because there's a whole new dimension, uh, kind of one step beyond cognitive behavioral therapy. But all of the uh, cognitive stuff is still pure gold. And it goes back to the teachings of Epictetus, the Greek Stoic philosopher who said, roughly 2,000 years ago, that people are disturbed not by things, not by events, not by what happens to us, but by our views of them. And that idea is so simple and basic that most people can't grasp what it means. We'll, we'll come back to that in, 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 a, in a minute. Now, the, the second idea is that when you're depressed and anxious, again, it's not the events of your life that are upsetting you. It's, it's the messages you're giving yourself, the way you're interpreting events. And when you're depressed, you're giving yourself messages like, I'm not as good as I should be. And there's a lot of people listening right now who are thinking that. And, uh, uh, or if you're shy, you may be thinking, you know, why am I so shy? I'm really screwed up. Uh, there, there must be something wrong with me. Uh, depressed people often feel discouraged or hopeless. And then you're telling yourself, uh, things will never change. This is my true self. I really am a loser. I'll be this way forever. And, and the really uh, amazing thing, that, that's been kind of known, what I just said, more or less for 2,000 years. But what's really kind of new and awesome is that the thoughts that trigger depression and anxiety are not valid thoughts. Depression and anxiety is the world's 
oldest Khan, and you're you're fooling yourself, but you don't you don't realize it. And then the final message from cognitive behavioral therapy is the very moment you change the way you think. In other words, the moment you can you suddenly see that those distorted thoughts aren't true and you stop believing them in that instant uh, you can change and so that that was revolutionary and when feeling good came out in 1980 uh, that was the first book to really introduce these ideas to the world and at that time there were only about 12 cognitive therapists in the world and all of us were pretty much considered quacks because <laughs> nobody, everyone was saying it's a chemical imbalance in the brain. I've been working on research on that defunct and fraudulent theory at the University of Pennsylvania, and we saw that that really wasn't a true th theory. And then, like so many young psychiatrists, I've been trained in this endless talk, just come and talk, talk, talk. And, and that didn't seem to do anything to my patients. I gave them tons of pills. That didn't seem to do anything for most of them. And then this new drug-free idea came along, and I first heard about it. I thought it was quackery, too. But then I started going to a weekly seminar by Dr. Beck at Penn. He was kind of creating cognitive therapy. And I said, I'll just try this with some of my patients to prove to myself that it isn't true. And lo and behold, they started recovering like popcorn. I said, man, there must be something to this. And I gave up my academic tenure-track position at uh, the medical school to go into private practice and help, help develop it because it was so darn exciting. But that, that's the, the, the cognitive piece. And then what happened, I started writing, I wrote this book, Feeling Good, just because I was so excited. I want people to know what was happening to my patients. I could barely uh, believe it myself. People who had been suicidal suddenly suddenly recovering. It was so, so exciting. And then uh, Feeling Good finally caught on. It, it has sold more than three million copies. The sequel, uh, Feeling Good Handbook, has sold another two million and cognitive therapies become the most popular form of psychotherapy in human history. It's, it's, it's practiced all over the world, and it's the most researched form of psychotherapy in human history. Well, that was the magic as of 1980, and the cool thing was that if researchers discovered that if they simply handed my book, Feeling Good, to people going to a medical center for treatment for severe or moderate depression, and just say, well, it's going to be four weeks before you can see your shrink, but in the meanwhile, read this book. They found that two-thirds of them recovered with, with, with no pills, with no therapy, within four weeks, and, and didn't even want or need therapy. In and Feeling so, Great, you, you point out that if somebody had told you sort of where you've come to now in terms of how rapidly these disorders can be disrupted – that you yourself would have said, you know, this guy is a quack, they're a con artist. Yeah, and right. what I want to get to, so going back to that first notion that you talked about, that um, nothing is either good or bad, but thinking makes it so, right? The, the Shakespeare, Shakespeare right? quote. Yeah, and I honestly, when I first heard that, I knew that it played a role. Like, that seemed pretty yeah. self-evidently true to me, but 100% yeah. as a student of the brain, I assumed that this was going to be a balancing act that was maybe you began a process, 
with the thinking, but ultimately it became a hardwiring neurochemical process, and that was where the real problem lied. But in Feeling Great, you walk through a story that I think is so profound. It's worth talking about here because this is probably the one people would be like, but what about postpartum depression? That's obviously hormonal. It's oh, yeah. obviously neurochemistry. Yeah. Um, yeah. And honestly, when you started the story in the book, I thought, actually, yeah, like how is it possible that that isn't hormonal and neurochemical? Yeah. Well, um, all your feelings re result from your thoughts and um, – the, we don't know how the brain uh, creates uh, depression and anxiety, and these theories like of chemical imbalance is, was just rubbish from the very start. There was never any reason from a scientific point of view to, to, to link depression to a deficiency of brain serotonin. That, that was the theory. This is a neurotransmitter serotonin, and you, it's too low in depression, and so if you raise up serotonin, people will recover. And we discovered that that theory was bunk when I was doing my research at, at, the, at the medical school because we had a, a ward for depressed veterans in the VA, and, and, and we did research studies there. And By doing in what? Of, Increasing their serotonin levels? Yeah, yeah. We, we gave them, you know, half the veterans got milkshakes. They all got milkshakes every day, but half of them were, were laced with uh, 20 grams of L-tryptophan, which is 20 times the amount you, you, you generally get in your diet. And, and that's the thing that goes directly from the stomach to the blood, diffuses into the brain, and is converted into serotonin. So we caused massive increases in serotonin in half of the veterans and kept them on this program for you know four or five weeks kept measuring their moods the whole the whole way no it was double blind no one knew who was getting this massive boost in brain serotonin and then we broke the code to see how the two groups did and there was absolutely no ch differences in the groups and neither of the groups improved whatsoever so we published that in the world's top psychiatry journal uh, the archives of general psychiatry and Everyone ignored it until about 15 years ago, because it clearly they ignored it. Well, there's money that drives stuff, uh, and and SSRIs, there's billions, big pharma. Yeah, there's billions of dollars being made on on, on this theory. That's 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 part of it, uh, because drug drug companies can generate uh, create a drug that has some effect on the serotonin system, and then they can get approval from the Food and Drug Administration to market it as an antidepressant. But now all of the new research indicates that the chemicals called antidepressants actually are not antidepressants. They're just placebos. They're just chemicals with side effects, and they don't outperform placebos. So we don't know the cause of depression. But the cool thing is, is that uh, there's a chapter in the new book by Mark Noble, a, a neuroscientist, and uh, his, his, his thinking is that the new team therapy, which it's like cognitive therapy on steroids, you might say, actually selectively activates. People aren't going to understand. They're, they're going to read team in lowercase when it's actually yeah. an acronym. Just real yeah. fast, break it down. So CBT, well, cognitive T, behavioral therapy, team yeah. is? T is testing. We test patients at the start and end of every therapy session. And the readers of the new book will actually take these tests, too, to, to trace changes in their mood while they're reading the book. E is empathy. Empathy 
will probably never cure anyone of anything, but you've got to have it if you're doing uh, therapy. And I tried to create empathy in the book, too, by showing warmth and compassion for, for the readers. And, and a lot of the readers in my book, first book, Feeling Good, have written me probably 50,000 and said, you're the only one who understands me. So I think you can get empathy uh, out of a book sometimes better than from a person. And then A is assessment of resistance. And that's the new dimension I've uh, created in the last 10 or 15 years of my work at Stanford. That That's different from cognitive therapy. Cognitive therapy is in the book, and it's still as good as gold. But in, in addition, we've I've developed new techniques to eliminate what, I guess, mental health professionals call resistance, which might not make much sense to the general public, but it seems like when it comes to change, we're all ambivalent. We we want to change, and, and yet we have one foot in the water and one foot on the shore, and you can see it clearly. Like, let's take an example. When I do workshops, I say, how many of you would like to, to lose some weight? And, you know, all the hands go up. And I say, you just made a mistake. It's not true that you want to lose some weight. You, you you definitely don't want to lose weight. There's only two things you can do to lose weight, and they both suck. One of them is you, you start eating carrots instead of that yummy Cinnabon you love, and the other is you get out and exercise when it's like it is right now, and uh, the air is horrible, or it might be raining or snowing. You want to be thin and attractive, but you don't want to lose weight, you see. <laughs> and that it shows resistance. I mean, and it's huge in adrenaline. It's also true in depression. People who are depressed people, it's the worst form of suffering in the world. And they say, oh, yeah, I'd give anything to, to get better. And then I say to them, and this is in the new book, well, let's say there's a magic button here. You press this magic button and you'll instantly go into a state of euphoria with no effort. Will you press that button? And everyone says, oh, yes, I'll pre press it. And then I say, well, we don't have a magic button, but I have some magical techniques. And I suspect by the end of today's session, we probably can make it. All your negative, all your depression, anxiety, shame and guilt and hopelessness and rage, they'll all disappear. All right, so let's take this back to the the post, we'll, we'll definitely get to that very counterintuitive punchline, but I want to, I want to put it in what I consider possibly the hardest example for people to get over, sure, let's talk which about is postpartum depression, woman. obviously yeah. hormonal. Um, well, yeah. How yeah. is that just her thoughts? Yeah. Well, um, it's not only her thoughts, but her motivation to, to, to be depressed. But what she was telling herself is, is, uh, I'm a failure as a mother. She was having trouble with, with, with breastfeeding. And I, and I shouldn't have mixed feelings about having a baby because she wasn't even sure she, she wanted to have, have, have a baby. And then she was telling herself, I have the wrong emotions. I should be better at breastfeeding. I'm, I'm failing as a mother. She, she was beating up on herself. And it's those thoughts, not some presumed hormonal imbalance that's causing her depression. Now, I can hear people at home screaming right now that you're blaming yeah. the mother for her postpartum depression. What, well, how do you respond to that? It is never to, to blame anyone. Self-blame is the cause of depression. It's not the, the cure for, uh, for depression. But it's actually very liberating to discover that your depression has resulted from messages you're giving yourself that are cruel and untrue. And that in today's session, I can show you how to crush those thoughts 
and, and get rid of this depression so you can go into a state of joy, not just feeling less depressed, but, but, but feeling, feeling euphoric. But uh, the, the goal is never to blame someone. And in fact, the discovery that you're wrong when you're depressed, that you're giving yourself unfair wrong messages is the greatest discovery a human being can make. I can give you a personal example, or, or we can stick with the with with the woman with the postpartum depression because she also had is, a complete is our recovery. personal example. Does it have anything to do with trains? Trains. Trains. You have oh, an amazing that's a good, story. That's a good story. Yeah. Yeah. That that to definitely. me that was the one-two punch of because my when I first heard you say that and I thought okay wait a second if this is true then I should be able to take somebody who was clinically depressed to, to the nines. And yeah. if they had amnesia, that their depression would instantly go away. And That's probably then, why electroconvulsive therapy works temporarily. It's actually not a very good treatment, but you get a memory <laughs> loss, so you kind of forget your thoughts for a few hours. This is super interesting. I think it would. If you tell that the, the train track story, um, it was sure. pretty... Pretty enlightening. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah, the after I wrote Feeling Good, this this young man wrote me and said, "Oh, I read your book Feeling Good, and I, I just love it." But I can't believe that a thought—you have to have a thought to have an emotion. He said, "What if you were stuck on a railroad uh, track with a train coming? You'd feel terrified, and you wouldn't have to put a thought in your mind." And I had read that letter when I was coming home from the airport in a taxi. And I put it in my briefcase and I was just reading this this letter. And I thought, my gosh, I'm I must be a fraud. This makes sense. How you know <laughs> obviously if something awful happens, you're gonna be terrified and you don't have to put a thought in your head. And oddly enough, as we were rounding a corner about a mile from my house, it's it, it there's a railroad track. And there was a car on the railroad track, driving on the railroad track. And I saw there, there was a freight train about a mile and a half away, coming like at 60 miles an hour on that track, and they don't stop. And so I said to the taxi driver, stop, I, I gotta, I, I'll see if I can get that guy off the railroad track, otherwise he'll, he'll be smashed. And, and so I ran up and, you know, it's, it was gravel about, you know, the at the edge of the tracks, you know, it was kind of elevated a little bit off mm. the, the the ground. And I, I went up there and knocked on the window and the car stopped. He was only going three miles an hour or something. And he rolled down his window and he says, oh, uh, uh, can you tell me the, the way to City Line Avenue? He was an older gentleman. And I said, City Line Avenue, you've got to be kidding me. It's eight miles in the other direction, but you're on a railroad uh, track and there's a train coming. You've got to back up, back up so I can get you off the track. Because I wanted him to back up to the road mm. so he could turn his car and then drive off before the train hit him. And so he starts backing up and I got him to the road. Now the, the train's about 30 seconds away and they starts honking its horn, like, get out of the way, get off the darn track and he was just perpendicular to the train and and so I got in front of him and waved my hand said back up now back up you just got to back up three or four feet and the train will miss you and the guy started going forward slowly and and then the train put on the whistle nonstop put on its brakes but it came skidding and it hit broadside at about 60 miles an hour and the, the, the car was ripped in half. 
and, and the front half went about 15 feet or so from where it had been, from the, from the impact. And I rushed up to the driver's window again, and, and all the windows were smashed, and, uh, and, and I expected to see a bloody, decapitated corpse, but the train had hit just an inch behind his head, and it was going so fast, it, it was kind of like when you pull a, a uh, uh, like table if there's clothes. a glass on, on a table and there's a cloth under it, you pull the cloth really fast, the, the glass doesn't fall over. Mm. And it was kind of like that, and he looked perfectly normal, but there was glass all over, and, and, and he said, what direction did you say for City Line Avenue? And I says, you've just been hit by a train. And, uh, and he said, I have not. He says, that's ridiculous. And I says, oh, no. Why, where do you think all this glass came from? And he says, you're right. It looks like somebody broke all the windows in my car all of a sudden. I said, where's your back seat? And he turned around. He saw that half of the car was missing. And then he looked at me and he says, where is this train? I said, it's right there. It's 15 feet from here. And the engineers, and they're running here right now. Uh, and he says, this is wonderful. And I says, wonderful? What's wonderful about it? He says, well, maybe I can sue. <laughs> and, and then the, the engineers came up, the police came, the ambulance came. Uh, I gave my story to, to the police, and I went home, and I couldn't understand what, what had happened. Uh, and the next day, I was on my six-mile jog, and I saw this man looking through the rubble, a younger guy, and I stopped and, and uh, I said, oh, yeah, what, what are you doing? And, and, and he says, well, uh, you know, my, my father was almost killed yesterday. Uh, he was hit by a, a train, but somebody saved his life. And, and I said, well, that might have been me uh, because I was here and, and I was trying to get him off of the railroad track. And I, uh, I, I didn't understand why he was driving down the railroad track. He was asking how to get to City Line Avenue. And, and then the fellow said, well, my dad's had uh, dementia uh, for, for quite a few years. And he, does, he lost his driver's license uh, five years ago. But he forgot, and after dinner, he, he decided to take the family car for a drive, and he snuck out and went, went driving. And, and so that, that explained what had happened. But here you have the same situation, and I had the thought, my gosh, this guy's going to get killed. You see, so I felt intense panic. He had the thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to earn a lot of money from a lawsuit. So he was feeling happy. Same situation, different thoughts, radically different uh, feelings. Yeah, see that when you told that story, I actually thought the punchline was going to be, okay, look, I'm actually making this up, but you know, it illustrates a point. And then to hear that it was really real. Um, and then there's a, it's interesting because it's really a two way street, right? So you have your thought, it triggers something biological in the brain. So they did a study where they removed the amygdala on a bunch of chimpanzees, released them back into the wild, that an inability to feel fear. And so within something like within 48 hours, they were all dead because oh, they, yeah. they wouldn't right. avoid a predator. They wouldn't avoid oh, yeah. limbs that were too small. And so yeah. you, when, if you can disrupt that communication, right? Because if you think something negatively, you are going to get a physiological response. It in nothing, oh, yeah. you're, not, you're not trying to it's say that, Hey, you won't. Thing. Right. Yeah, and that yeah. to me is, is super interesting. So now going back to our woman with postpartum depression. So she's having these thoughts. 
um, they're giving her a neurochemical cascade where she is having a physiological response to this. She's confusing the physiological response with what's actually causing this. How does she then begin to back out of that? Like, how does she, the, what, what is the process, the mood journaling and all of that yeah. is going to help her get out yeah. of this? Well, there's, there's two phases to it now. When I wrote Feeling Good, it was just how to crush the negative thoughts. But now I think it's worth a, walking us through that. I think people understanding the, the sort of gist of the 10 cognitive distortions. Well, sure, let's, let's do that. And then maybe later we can talk about this amazing new thing that, that speeds recovery so much. Uh, but, but uh, you know, she, she, what is she telling herself? Well, she's telling herself, it's my fault that, that the baby isn't nursing. I, I'm a failure as a mother. And also... I shouldn't have mixed feelings about having a child. Mothers are supposed to just love the, the, their children. And, uh, and th those thoughts have all of the classic cognitive distortions, for example, uh, uh, should statements. I, 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 sh I, sh I shouldn't have mixed, mixed feelings. Um, also, uh, self-blame. It, it, it's my fault that the baby is, is having trouble uh, nursing. That, that type of thing, and she had about eight thoughts, and, and they all had multiple distortions, you know, all or nothing thinking, looking at things in black or white uh, categories. Emotional reasoning is huge. A lot of people who are listening right now feel depressed and hopeless, so that they feel like losers, so they say, I must be a loser. I feel like a loser. I must be hopeless. I, I, I feel ho hopeless. Uh, She's also involved in mind reading, uh, thinking, oh, other mothers don't have mixed feelings. Other mothers are, you know, these ideal, ideal mothers. And, and so that's the first step is to recognize that what you're telling yourself is not true. It's, it's distorted. And the second thing is to realize that it's, it's kind of mean-spirited what, what you're doing to, to yourself. And I used a number of techniques with her uh, that were all pretty darn effective. But one very simple one is called the double standard technique. Like, uh, I don't even remember what I called her. I always disguise people's names. And then I can't remember. I know her real name. But whatever her name was in the, in the book, I, I said, imagine that you were, that I was a dear friend of yours. And, and I look a lot like you. And I went to the same schools. I got the same grades. And I also have a, a new baby here. And I'm not you. I'm a, I'm a dear friend of yours. And then uh, and, she, and I said, well, could, could we do a little role play like this? And she said, oh, sure. And, and so I said, Let, let's give her a name. Let, let's call her Martha. And, and I'm Susan. And, and I said, uh, Martha, could I talk to you for a minute? Um, I, I, uh, I, I don't know if you're aware of this. I just have a new baby. You know, my, my husband and I, we, 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 we cried for years and we, we, pregnancy didn't happen and we were almost given up. And then all of a sudden here came the pregnancy. Now we have this, uh, this beautiful little boy, but he, he, he's having trouble nursing. And I, I'm telling myself that, uh, that this is my fault and, and that I'm, I'm a failure as a mother. Does that seem pretty valid? And then 
my patient who was playing the role of of herself talking to a dear friend uh, said, oh my goodness, uh, that, that, that doesn't make any sense at all. You know, quite a few mothers and babies have this, this problem. And, and, you know, it's certainly not your fault if, if, if your little boy is having trouble with, with nursing and it, it certainly doesn't make you a bad mother. And I said, well, that's cheering me up a little bit, uh, but, but I want to make sure that that's totally true. Is that 100% true or are you just BSing me? You just try to cheer me up. And she says, no, what I'm saying is totally true, 100% true. So I said, so if it's 100% true for me, and I'm like a clone of you, then that would be 100% true of you too. Is, is that right? She says, yes. Yeah. So I said, write that down. And we're doing this all in, in writing. And I said, now, how much do you believe what you wrote down in the positive thought column? She says, 100%. And now, how much do you believe the negative thought, that this is my fault? And she said, zero percent. And that's kind of how it works. But then I wanted to push it further. And I said, okay, will you help me on that one? But I have another negative thought. And I want to see what you think. See, I'm not always excited about being a mother. And, and to tell you the truth, I, I've had mixed feelings about pregnancy all, all the way along. And sometimes I'm real excited about being a mother. And other times I kind of yearn for my, my work and for my career. And, and feel kind of burdened and, and, and even a little resentful. And uh, surely that makes me a failure as a mother, right? I mean, a mother is supposed to just have loving feelings. Isn't that right? And she says, that's ridiculous. You know, all mothers have mixed feelings about everything. Nobody has pure feelings. And if you have mixed feelings, that that's, makes you a human. It doesn't make you a failure. And I said, is that right? You mean I'm entitled to have mixed feelings, even resentment about being a mother? I said, she said, absolutely. That's human. All mothers feel that way sometimes. I said, is, are you bullshitting me? You're just blowing smoke in my face. She says, no, that's 100% true. And I said, write that down. And I'm, how much do you believe this negative thought? I'm a failure as a mother because I don't always have, you know, excited feelings about be, being a mother and she said Z zero and that's the type of thing it's 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 learning uh, to treat yourself with compassion uh, and kindness and, and realism rather than bullying yourself with these distorted negative thoughts and that that is really the essence of cognitive uh, therapy and then there's this other huge discovery from my weekly training group at Stanford, I have a, a Tuesday night training group that's free for community therapists because most of them aren't happy themselves and they know they're not getting great results so they can come to Stanford every Tuesday and get unlimited free psychotherapy training and un unlimited free personal therapy for themselves if they want. And uh, out of that group has emerged another massive insight that's, I think, as, as big and important as cognitive therapy. I mean, that changed the world of psychotherapy uh, in the 1980s. And I think th this is going to cause another massive revolution in how psychotherapy is done because we've discovered, I still use all those amazing cognitive therapy techniques, but we've, I've, I've we've discovered a technique that makes them work uh, 
even faster and uh, th than, than cognitive therapy work. Because you see, in the old days, when we just had cognitive therapy, I, I would think if I get somebody with severe depression better in six, eight, 10, 12 sessions, that was fantastic. And it was. And that's about you know what it took. Now, with the new techniques, when I work with people, I generally, generally, I'd say 90, 95% of the time, I see a complete elimination of symptoms the first time I sit down with them. Now, that has to be a 90-minute session or a two-hour session. I can't do it in an hour, but, it, but I can do it in, in two hours, and then it's generally one and done. You know, the, it's a complete course of psychotherapy, and then I do relapse prevention training, and for the most part, the, the person is, is, is good to go. Was the key insight there that people are resistant, that they yeah. have their – talk about that. Talk about the two different types of resistance. This this to me is that sort of no-bullshit approach of like, you know, look, this is working, but there it could still be better. And acknowledging that people put up roadblocks and that you found a way around them uh, yeah. is, is so powerful. Yeah, yeah, that, it's been mind-boggling because I've, I've never had so much fun doing psychotherapy because every almost everyone recovers just right the first time I meet with them. When they get high, I get high. But the essence of it, <clears throat> see, Freud tried to call this thing resistance. And people talk about resistance. Why do people want to be depressed? Why do they resist recovery? Because half of people have pretty strong resistance. Half of people do not. But about half of people will yes, but the therapist, and they seem to fight against effective treatment. And we used to think, we, we were trained to think that, oh, some, they, this is their identity. Uh, they, they see themselves as a negative person, so they're afraid to let go of their identity. Or they, they, they get secondary gain. They like attention that they get from being depressed. And, and things like that, or they like people like feeling sorry for themselves. And these uh, interpretations of resistance are kind of uh, put-downs to, to the patient, and I don't think they're true in most cases, and they definitely never helped anyone. But what we have found is Meaning that the re realizing something negative about yourself is not going to help you. When you say yeah, that they yeah, don't yeah, help Yeah, you. yeah, yeah. If, if a therapist convinces you you're just feeling sorry for yourself, you'll, you'll feel more angry and more hurt. It's not mm -hmm. going to help you in, in any way. Sometimes there's a little truth to it. Sometimes I get upset and I want to feel sorry for myself for a little while. But uh, it, it's, it's not the big thing that keeps people stuck in depression. And, and what, what we've discovered, let's take the postpartum woman that, that we talked about, one of her core issues is, is perfectionism. She's been a super high achiever her whole life. And part of her success is that she's always criticized herself when, when she falls short. And so when she's beating up on herself and saying, I'm a failure as a mother and this is my fault, it, it shows how, how, what a loving mother she, she really is. And, and it shows that she has high standards and that she wants to do the very best for, for her little boy. If you want a fighting chance against the competition, you need to be using the best technology and platforms in the world like Shopify. For whatever and wherever you want to sell, from launching to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. Now, I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy for you to start, run, and grow your business. 
It didn't used to be this easy. I'm telling you, back in the day, it was a lot harder. I'm so jealous. Shopify powers more than 10% of all U.S. e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly and efficiently choose Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash impact now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash impact. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now, I want to put this back in the context of something that you said at the beginning, and I said, we'll get to yeah. this, and, and I want people to know we're, we're now at this, which is that notion of the magic button and yeah. getting people to, to uh, positive reframing, I believe, is the term that you've given it, yeah. Um, yeah. where you're taking something that you would perceive as negative and you're realizing there actually is something good. So if you can go yeah. back to, you know, you present people with this, they're just feeling absolutely horrendous. And the, and the most powerful example I think you have of this is the mother of the little girl who was shot in the face with a pellet yeah. gun and it explodes one of her or multiple of her teeth, perhaps, and multiple surgeries. And the mother had let her go out to play. And so it's like, oh man, she's beating herself up over it. I never should have let her go out. I'm a terrible mother. Yeah. You know, my daughter is suffering. How could I ever allow myself to be happy again? Um, how, how did you help her realize that hitting the magic button and making all of that anxiety and all of that, you know, shame and guilt, like how on earth did you make her see that guilt and shame and anxiety are actually positive? Well, that's the really fun, fun thing. You see, she'd been suffering for, for nine years since her daughter had been shot at the age of 12, and she blamed herself. that she, she said, I shouldn't have let her go out to play that night, uh, so I'm a bad mother, and just horrible nine years. And so said to her, after we empathized, uh, I was treating her in front of a live audience, and I, I said, now, if there's a magic button here, I said, well, first of all, what do you want out of this session? If a miracle happens, what miracle would you want? She said, well, I, I'd feel better. I'm so, so tired of feeling 100% guilty and 100% anxious and 100% ashamed and 100% depressed and hopeless and angry. And I said, well, let's imagine there's a magic button here. And if you press it, you'll be instantly cured with no effort and you'll go into a state of euphoria. Uh, will you press that button? 
just absolutely, I'd press it in a heartbeat. Every, everyone says that. And I say, well, we don't have a magic button, but I've got some incredible techniques. But I, I don't think it would be such a good idea to use those techniques. Uh, and I just said, well, well, why not? You know, this is what I need. I've been trying for nine years to get over my, my depression. I said, well, before we use those techniques, uh, let's see what all your negative thoughts and feelings show about you that's positive and, and awesome. Now, now, let's say your sadness and depression to start out with. You've been horribly depressed because your 12-year-old daughter for nine years has had surgeries and unsuccessful treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, and she's been pretty miserable. So if you press the magic button, you'll be joyous and happy. So you're saying you want to be joyous and happy about the fact that your daughter's been suffering for nine years? She said, oh, no, that doesn't sound right. So, so I said, what does your sadness show about you that's positive and awesome? She says, it shows how much I love my daughter. So I put that down. Is that real? Is that powerful? Is that important? She said, absolutely. And then you're, you're, you're telling yourself uh, that the people here in the audience are judging you. That was another one of her negative thoughts. They think you're a bad mother. You think you're a bad mother. What does that thought show about you that's positive and awesome? The fact that you're concerned that the people in the audience here may judge you. She says, I guess it shows that I want a positive, loving relationships with, with, with them. And I says, is that true? She says, absolutely. I said, is that important? She says, absolutely. So put that down. Shows that I want loving relationships with the, with the people here in the group. And then uh, you're, you're very self-critical. You're beating up on yourself uh, constantly. Uh, I'm a bad mother. I'm a failure. I, I shouldn't have done this. I, you know, I should have done, uh, done that. What, what does that show about you that's positive and awesome? She says, well, maybe that I have high standards. I said, absolutely. Is that true? She says, yes. And I said, have your, have your high standards helped you? She says, oh, yes. I, I do everything I can to help my daughter. And, and I got a PhD in clinical psychology. I've, I, I've achieved a lot. And I said, is that important? And she says, absolutely. I said, what else does all this self-criticism show about you that, that's positive and, and, and awesome? And, and she says, well, maybe humility. I'm not like bragging about, about myself. I said, is that important, humility? She says, yes, I'm a very religious person. That's it's a spiritual principle. So put down humility. And then, uh, and you're anxious all the time. And if you press the magic button, your anxiety will go away. What, what are some good things about your anxiety? She said, it keeps me vigilant to protect my daughter. daughter. The last time I let down my, my guard, she got shot in the face. Uh, so I guess you're saying your anxiety is, is your love for your daughter. She says, absolutely. So she puts that down. And then you're angry. Is, is that valid? Uh, what, what are some beautiful things about your anger? She says, well, the parents of those boys never should have let them go out and play with other children with a loaded rifle. Uh, and so, so what does your anger show about you, Karen? That's awesome. She said, well, I'm, I'm like an angry mother bear. I'm going to protect my daughter. I'm not going to let those parents get away with with that. And, and, and I said, is that important? She says, absolutely. So we came up with a list of about 25 beautiful things about her depression and anxiety and shame and guilt and anger. 
and hopelessness. Even the hopelessness is even a, a good thing because it prevents her from getting uh, disappointed, getting her hopes up. Like it doesn't make sense that you could sit down with Dr. Burns for one session and be cured. That's like a snake oil salesman. So your hopelessness shows that you're a critical thinker and it prevents you from getting horribly, uh, get your hopes up and then get all disappointed at the end of the evening. She said, absolutely. So then I said, well, look at, given all these beautiful things about you, we've, we've listed 25 beautiful things about you that, that, that are all expressions you know, of these, these negative feelings, that, that you have these negative feelings because of these beautiful things about you. And if you press that magic button, they'll all go down the drain along with your negative feelings. Is that what you want? She says, no, I, I don't want to suffer, but I don't want to give up all these positive core values that I have. And then we said, well, maybe we can make a little compromise here. Maybe instead of pressing that magic button, we'll have a magic dial and you can dial them down to a lower level, but not to zero. So, so how sad would you want to be at the end of the evening? It's 100 right now. She said, oh, 10% is enough. They said, are you sure that's enough? Are you, could I sell you on 20? <laughs> now I'm in the position of trying to persuade her to be more upset, do you, do you, do you see, rather than trying to sell her on something, which only would trigger resistance. And then so she dialed them to zero. She thought the shame, she didn't need any shame. And one of them, she only needed 2%. And some of them, she wanted 10%. And that type of thing. And now I've made a deal with her subconscious mind, with her resistance, that will dial them down to these levels, but no further. And then I said, now, Karen, that I have to advise you about one thing. The techniques we're going to use are so powerful that you might overshoot your goals. Like your depression may go all the way from 100 to zero rather than to 10. But don't worry, because if it goes, if you get too happy, I'll try to I'll help you work your depression up to 10 before the end of the evening. And then she started laughing. And at that point, I knew I had her. Uh, and, and then it was easy. Uh, then it took about 15 minutes for her to talk back to the negative thoughts, the same way we role-played earlier, using double standard, identify the distortions. Uh, and and uh, she not only went to zero on everything, she actually went beyond zero and went into a kind of state of euphoria. And the neat thing is I have all of this on video. And uh, I'm, I'm going to be showing it in a couple of uh, presentations for therapists and one for the general public coming up, too. So people have to actually be able to see these little uh, s snippets. But that that's how it, it works. And uh, I want to go a little bit deeper into the into the um, the resistance. So you talked about in the book how there's two types. You've got outcome resistance and you have process resistance. Oh, yeah. I'd love to know a little bit about that. And then I'd also like to better understand is it that people are subconsciously identifying that these actually are good traits or is it that they don't want to confront something negative about themselves? No, it's just, well, um, no, no, uh, confronting something negative about yourself. That, that would not be true in depression and, and anxiety. Actually, uh, it might be true when people are angry and vengeful, uh, or with habits and addictions, but in depression and anxiety, the resistance always results from things are really uh, good and beautiful uh, about you. But this thing of outcome and process resistance is blowing my mind because you really read and got the the new book, which is kind of exciting to me. But yes, the 
there's eight kinds of resistance. There's outcome and process resistance for four targets, depression, anxiety, relationship problems, and habits and addictions. Outcome resistance is what we just worked through with Karen, who who was uh, depressed about her daughter. It means you don't, subconsciously, you don't want a good outcome from the therapy. And in this case, because all of her negative thoughts were because of what's most loving and and beautiful about, about her. But that, that's outcome resistance. Um, outcome resistance for anxiety is a, is a little different. Uh, all anxious uh, patients feel, or people, feel like my anxiety is protecting me from something terrible. And if I was cured, you know, things would, horrible things would happen. So, for example, uh, I, I treated a woman with obsessive compulsive disorder who, who uh, was washing her hands 100 times a day. Uh, thinking she's going to get contaminated and if she wants treatment for that. And, and then I said, well, suppose you, I press this magic button and, and you'll be cured. Would you do that? She says, absolutely. I don't want to see the I said, okay, so now you're cured uh, and so you're not going to wash your hands 100 times a day. What's going to happen? She says, my hands will get contaminated. And then I said, then what will happen? She says, well, then I'll touch my children. Okay, and then what's going to happen? And then they'll get contaminated. And then what's going to happen? She said, well, then they're going to die of leukemia. They'll get leukemia and die. And then she started sobbing. I said, you still want to press that magic button? She said, oh, no, no, I don't want to press it. And that's the outcome resistance. You see, she thought that her anxiety was protecting her and her children. Now, process resistance is a little different. Process resistance means there's something you're going to have to do that you're not going to want to do to get better. See, it's not, once you've decided, I want to get better, that's half, you're halfway there. But now, what's this thing you're going to have to do? Well, the thing that the press patient is going to have to do is psychotherapy homework, uh, practicing, writing down negative thoughts, doing the exercises in my books, like in Feeling Good and, and in the new Feeling Great. The crucial thing is to do these exercises because that's where you reprogram your brain. That's where the change really, really happens. And and so when I work with people, I, I say this is a gentle ultimatum. If you want to work with me, you must agree to do the exercises. If not, I'm not the therapist you're looking for because all I specialize in is quick, irreversible cures. And if you want to keep talking endlessly to somebody without, you know, changing your life, then I'm not the person you're looking for. And and I I lay down the law, but in a loving way. And then most people want to stick with the therapy and they do the homework. And 100% of the patients who do homework between sessions recover. 100% of patients who refuse to do homework do not improve or recover. So it's a really a big deal. In anxiety, the, the uh, process resistance is exposure. The anxious patient will have to face their fear, their, their worst fear. And when it's happening, it's going to be terrifying. And if you want me to cure your anxiety, you're going to have to confront your fears. Now, in most cases, I'll be there with you. I'll go with you to confront your fear. But you must do that. Just talking about your anxiety is not is not going to cure you. And I know how important it is because I myself, when I wrote my book, When Panic Attacks, it was all on all the anxiety disorders. I discovered that I've had 11 anxiety disorders when I was writing it. I didn't realize this. And then in the six months after it came out, I thought of six more. 
So I've had 17 anxiety disorders. I've had fear of bees, blood, horses, dogs. I used to have incredible public speaking anxiety. This, something like this, would have freaked me out. And Talk to me about how, how yeah, do you do it with speaking? Because if you're going to expose yourself to speaking, the audience is not unconscious. You're, yeah. you're there. You're exposed. Is it self-narrative? Um, how do you how well, do you do more than important. just be exposed? Exposure is important. You know, motivation is important. I use a lot of techniques, but I can tell you how I got over my own. If you have time for another story, yeah, please. The uh, the when I was doing my research on brain chemistry, uh, I was invited to go to a prestigious conference in England at Oxford University, sponsored by NATO. And it was called the uh, Advanced Study Institute for Metabolic Compartmentation in the Brain. And I was doing this computer simulation work on brain serotonin metabolism. And uh, so I was, uh, they invited the 80 of the top scientists, brain scientists in the world to go. And then uh, two younger people who were kind of just getting started. And I was, happened to get one of those two invitations. And I was terrified because uh, the work that I was doing was challenging the work coming out of the National Institute of Mental Health, the Laboratory of Preclinical Psychopharmacology. And uh, I, I could see that their, their research wasn't being done pro properly. They, they weren't analyzing the mathematics that they were using wasn't correct. And, and they didn't have good data. They were losing half, they were injecting radioactivity into rat brains and then losing half of it. And so I decided to redo those experiments properly and I came to the opposite conclusion. The, and this was the first research study I'd ever done. And, but I heard that the head of that laboratory liked to humiliate people in, in conferences and that he was gonna be at this conference. And my talk was the last talk of the conference after four long days of hearing these brilliant people. And I felt so outclassed. And then finally my turn came. And the night before, I was so anxious, I couldn't sleep. And I wandered around the Oxford campus and owls were like hooting at me derisively. I was in a panic and I had this fantasy that I would go up to the podium, freak out, read and mumble my talk and that he would sit right in front of the podium and at the end he would jump in the air and start screaming at me. And I absolutely believed that that would happen. And all day I waited for my turn and it was like death. I said, I wish I wasn't here. Why did I come to this conference? Finally they introduced me and I went up to the podium with my papers and there he was right in front of me sitting in the front row kind of glaring at me, exactly as I had fantasized. And I got so scared, I read and kind of mumbled my talk. And then at the end, there was this silence, and the moderator said, does anyone have any questions for the young doctor? And this fellow jumped out of his chair and started shouting at me, telling me my work was BS, and I didn't know what I was talking about, and it was just incredibly humiliating. And then he sat down and the moderator said, does anyone else have any questions for the young doctor? Nobody said a word. And they said, this concludes our conference. And we're now going to walk two blocks to the blah, blah, blah restaurant for our celebratory, you know, banquet or something. 
And when I walked there, I felt lower than a piece of dirt. And no one would walk next to me. And when we got there, no one would sit next to me. And it, it was the most humiliating experience of my life. And then when I flew back to the United States, halfway across the Atlantic Ocean, I was finally calmed down enough to think of what his criticisms were. And I had the thought, that guy doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. That was a bunch of BS he was throwing at me. And I, I, and I went to talk to uh, my collaborators who'd been helping me. And, and one of them was this uh, fellow at Penn, a physiologist named Martin Prang. And I had heard he was one of the top two mathematicians in the United States. And he was helping me with the mathematics behind. We were doing computer simulation of brain serotonin metabolism. It was pretty groundbreaking what we were doing. And I said, I, I don't think this guy knows what he's talking about. And, and he says, David, you're exactly right. Uh, his, his criticisms are just, they do not make sense. So we did a few more simulations and I wrote up my article and submitted it to a um, journal. And then I got a call. This is a little long story, but it has a good conclusion. I got a call in about three weeks from the editor of the journal. And I thought, good gosh, why are they calling? I usually don't they write rejection letters? Do they call you up and call you out and tell you how awful your article was? And he called and he says, listen, uh, Dr. Burns, we got your article and there's something unusual. Um, none of the reviewers had any suggestions for changing anything in it. And they have unanimously uh, agreed that it, it needs to be published. It's going to be in our next issue. But I'm wondering, could we submit it for the A.E. Bennett competition? This is an annual competition for investigators under 35 years of age uh, on brain research. And it's the top award in the world. And you'll be competing with uh, NIMH, the, the group that you're uh, criticizing, and, and scientists from all over the world. Could we submit your paper? And I said, you sure can. I had no idea. And then he called three weeks later, and he says, you're the first unanimous winner of the A.E. Benedict. Oh. And uh, I, I just couldn't believe my ears. And, and he said, can you uh, give a talk, presentation to a thousand psychiatrists in New York next month at our, at our meeting to receive the award? I said, you bet I can. Absolutely. And then every night before I went to bed, I would start to fantasize, you know, blowing it in front of a thousand psychiatrists. Then I forced myself to change the image and to say instead to imagine just talking the talk with no notes and telling the people how lucky I was to work with Martin Prang and, and uh, Dave Brunswick and uh, Howell Herring and Jack, Jack London, the people on my research team and how fantastic the discoveries we made were and how grateful that I was and, and what a fantastic experience it was. And I, I told them I wouldn't accept the award unless they gave, made my, my other co-authors equal recipients, which they said they wouldn't do. And then I said, oh, well, then I won't accept the award. And they said, okay, we'll do it. Wow. And so, so they came too. To, and, 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 and I just forced, and I imagined that at the end of my talk, everyone would rush up with congratulations and stuff, just the the opposite deal. And I didn't believe it, but I kept forcing myself to think that way. And then when the day came, I, I walked up to that podium. My wife came with me to New York from Philadelphia. There were a thousand, you know, researchers in the audience. And then I, I told them about uh, about the research. 
And it just, the, how excited I was, how grateful I was to have people of unbelievable brilliance, you know, on, on my research team and what the implications of the research were and the methods that we had developed to do this, this, this research. And at the end, everybody rushed up to the podium and just, you know, it was exactly as I had fantasized it. So that, that was, you know, how I got over another, another fear. And then the odd thing was that uh, two or three weeks later, this group from Sloan Kettering in New York called and said, can we come and meet with you and Martin Prang in Philadelphia? Because we have an idea and we want to see if you think it's, it's ridiculous or theoretically possible. Because you see, we'd been using mathematics uh, and, and certain information to, to figure out what's going on inside of the brain. And they, they, they said that they had wanted to create something called a CAT scan that, that, that could take images of the inside of the human brain using electromagnetic stuff. And, and did we think their mathematics was valid? And wow. they think this was possible. Did we think this was possible? And I didn't have much to say because I didn't have the mathematical power of Martin. But Martin looked at it. He says, yeah, I, I, he said, this, this, this is definitely going to work. And then they went and, and developed the world's first uh, cap, cap scanner. So there, but anyway, that was my, uh, my experience with public speaking anxiety. And, you know, and then, you know, once you've had that, that experience, uh, I, I, I have, I've had very little public speaking anxiety since then. And just like this, like meeting with you, to me, it's just like, what a great moment this is. You know, I'm old and I'll be 78 in a week. And Whoa. all I've Congratulations. got is, thank you, all I've got is the experience. <clears throat> do, you, do you see what I mean? And what an experience this is to, to hang out with you and to share these stories that, that may touch people and change their lives. David, I, I am serious when I say I am so grateful for your work and, you know, what you've managed to put together in just those two books, let alone the rest of your work, um, feeling good and feeling great is, is transformational. And it was given to me originally by one of my employees who had been struggling with anxiety and he had found this and he knew that I had struggled with anxiety. So he gave me a copy. Oh yeah. As I was reading it, I was just like, Oh my God, it's so step by step. It's so usable. It's something that you can deploy immediately. And, the more you interact with it, the more sort of self-evident it becomes just how powerful it is. And that last example that you gave of as you imagine something, you are creating that body response to what you're thinking of. And I said, you know, so many people rehearse failure and so few people rehearse success. And because you've rehearsed failure, you're beginning to associate this negative response with this otherwise neutral thing. And so it's no surprise that you then go and perform exactly the way you thought you were going to perform. So it's this really rudimentary thing that I think nobody has explained as clearly and simply as you and given the ways to unwind that. And I think feeling great really is as breakthrough as you think it is in terms of dealing with that resistance and understanding that as a part of the process of overcoming whatever mood disorder it is that you're struggling with. So again, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I, I am eager to, to see people adopt the new material. Uh, I'm sure it'll be as transformational as the old. So thank you.
Thank you so much. This has been the best interview I've ever had because of all the effort you put into it. I couldn't believe how on top of the stuff you, you are, and it makes it uh, it's, it's such a gift to the person you're interviewing, and it, it takes a lot of work, and I'm, I'm very grateful. That's very kind. It is the least I can do to show my appreciation for what you've given the world. Um, it's amazing. All right, everybody, trust me when I say every word that I have said is absolutely true. It is astonishing. His books will change your life if you use them. Uh, and speaking of things you can use, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate and review us. That helps us build this community. And that is what we are all about right now building this community as big as we can to help as many people as we can deliver as much value as possible. And you guys rating and reviewing really helps with that. All right, guys, thank you again so much. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.